Good morning. morning. We open your Bibles with me, please, to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Brought my laptop. Samuel chapter 14. It's an old man's laptop. It's folder. All right, chapter 14. Uh, I've decided uh, this is a really, really long chapter. And uh, since you guys probably want to have lunch sometime this afternoon, we're going we're, we're gonna to break this up uh, into, into two sections, Lord willing. Um, uh, the first first part, we're going to look at uh, these first uh, verses uh, from to uh, about verse 23. And then uh, hopefully, by God's grace, the second service finish, finish this up. But let's, let's read these first uh, 20, 23 verses of chapter 14. Thank you so much. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave or tree under a tree at uh, uh, Migron or Migron. The people who were, were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. That's a priestly garment. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the, uh, name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, make note of that, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And the armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul." Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look! Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. <laughs> Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell, uh, they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of, in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in, uh, in the field, and among the people. Uh, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us and 
when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. Behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before, the, before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Let's pray. Father, we are most grateful. Most grateful that we have, Lord, this, this treasure of Your Word. God, uh, you, you, You've given us a mind and a ability to read. You, you've communicated, Lord, Your, your Word to us in, in, a, in a written language. And we're so grateful for that. You haven't left us in the dark to try to figure out, Lord, how we're to live and how we're to think. And uh, Lord, You reveal great and wonderful truths about Yourself through this, this Word. I pray, Father, that You indeed would be our teacher today, that You would show great things to us, and, and that, Lord, through it we wouldn't just be puffed up with some, some knowledge, some head stuff, but, Lord, this truth would get right down inside of us, fix what's broken there, cause us to be more like Christ today. Thank You, Father, for Your goodness to us. Thank You for being a God that is worthy of our full faith and obedience. Lord, I, I pray uh, for this people, uh, people will hear within the sound of my voice that, Lord, everyone here knows You, has sincerely, truly put their faith in You. But I pray, Father, if there be one here who doesn't know You, that today would be the day, that they would indeed recognize today is the day of salvation, and that they would put their full faith and trust in You. You indeed are a God that we can trust, we can believe in. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I prayed, I've simply entitled this message, A God We Can Believe In. He is a God we can believe in, right? He is a God that we can trust. He's a trustworthy God. And you see that from Genesis to Revelation. He is always and will forevermore be trustworthy, right? He is worthy of that. All true believers know this, by the way. We recognize that, that that He, among all the false gods of the world, our God is worthy of our full faith and obedience. It was our our brother, the great apostle Paul, who who knew this truth as well. And he had studied the stories of faith throughout the Scriptures. He knew the author of these stories, by the way. <laughs> he knew God, didn't he? he? He knew God in Christ. He knew these stories and, and he knew the God behind all of these stories. Uh, Paul, Paul used those stories, if you will, to help motivate and drive his faith and his obedience to Christ. I love what he wrote to a young pastor, Timothy, who was having some, some doubtful moments, you know, the, some, some fearful kind of moments. He wrote to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I know whom I have believed, 
and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I've committed to Him against that day. In other words, until Jesus comes, I'm going to keep serving, I'm going to keep working, I'm going to keep preaching, I'm going to keep planting churches because there's something that I know about this God. He's a trustworthy God. He's a God worth putting our full faith and obedience toward. This is the God that I know. Paul, Paul knew the God who had saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. When? Before time began. <laughs> this is the God that, that, that Paul believed in. Paul knew the God who has saved us and called us. Isn't that wonderful? And Paul knew the God of the Scriptures. The Scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he told young Pastor Timothy as well. He knew this God. He knew the God of the Scriptures. He was convinced from the Scriptures, uh, uh, like the Scriptures we have here today, that the God who led and who fed Israel, the God who provided for Israel, would provide for him as well. (laughs) And by the way, He's going to provide for us as well. Whatever it is that we need to be obedient to Him, he will provide. Therefore, uh, the, the great apostle moved in faith in spite of the great opposition that he, that he experienced too, by the way. Uh, opposition from the Jews. Opposition from the Gentiles. In spite of his own human weaknesses, he moved forward in faith, right? In spite of his imprisonments, in spite of his beatings, in spite of his mockings, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the shipwrecks, in spite of the rejections, in spite of all the imprisonments, he moved forward in faith. He believed God. And that, and that faith moved him to continue to preach, to continue to plant churches, to continue to make disciples. Folks, listen, here, here in our text, in a very similar way, Jonathan believed this as well. Yes. And, and, and what he believed about God, and, and what he believed in God, if I could say it that way, it, it, it moved him to action. He realized that our God, listen, our God is a saving God. This is, this is what He does. <laughs> he has a consistent history of saving His people. Jonathan, the son of Saul, the king, moves forward in faith. Moved because of what he believed about God. Mm, isn't that wonderful? And it seemed that everything was stacked against Jonathan too in our, in our text. But, but, but he knew that if God was for him... Who can be against Him? And folks, that same truth is true of us today. If God is for us, I mean, what can man do? Right? What what, what can the world do against a God like our God? Amen? Yeah. What a great God He is. Now, we've been studying the Old Testament, haven't we? We've been looking at some of these books in the Old Testament and seeing over and over again our saving God. And usually in spite of sinful men, He's been saving. And, and, and usually in light of some really, really challenging and what seems to be humanly impossible circumstances. And how God used less than ideal men and circumstances to accomplish His salvation. By the way, that's the way He works. He doesn't use very many mighty men, does He? He, he just simply uses men and women of faith. And it's never a perfect faith, is it? But it's an adequate faith. It's a faith that He gives. It's a faith granted by God Himself. A faith to believe in God and His power to save. Not in man's power, but in God's power. You guys may remember our study through the book of Judges. You remember that left-handed judge, Ehud? 
and how he faced that, that, uh, that fat king Eglon and how God through Ehud delivered them from, from, the, from the oppression of those Moabite people. You may remember old scared and doubting Gideon. You remember him and wanted to have all these proofs from God and yet, and yet God used that man to deliver Israel from those countless Midianites. You, you may remember Jephthah. You remember Jephthah? I mean, he was, a, he was a guy born to a prostitute. Kicked out of his hometown. Had to go live somewhere else. But then when trouble came, what they did, they called him back. And God used that man to, to deliver God's people from the people of Ammon, those, those Ammonites. You may remember that. Yeah. In spite of all the strong and strength of the, of the enemies, they were no match for our God. Amen. Our God is a saving God. Yes. We've come to, to 1 Samuel. And, and right there in the very beginning, we're, we're faced with an impossible situation. You have barren Hannah. You remember her? Yeah, here was, here was an impossible situation. And yet she pleaded with the Lord. She believed the Lord. She asked the Lord for a son. And what did God do? He gave her a son. He didn't have to do that. He graciously did that. She dedicated him to the Lord. And what, what a tremendous blessing we've seen that Samuel has been to the people of God. Something only God can do. We've been seeing God preserve and protect His people in spite of wicked priests. In spite of a failing king, God is going to continue to preserve, protect, and provide for His people. Folks, that's a comfort for us today. That is a great comfort for us today. Because the same God, the God of of, of Jonathan, is our God. The God God of Ehud and Jephthah and Gideon is our God. He's still a saving God. He is still a providing God. This is our God. Now here in our text today, God is going to raise up this man, Jonathan. And we're going to see God's work and God's power, and we're going to see Jonathan's faith, (laughs) his trust in the God who saves. A God, listen, this is a God we can believe in. He's a God worthy of our belief. We're going to see that in the text. In this text, we see Jonathan's faith in God's work and God's glory, right? I I want us to examine for a moment the faith of this man, Jonathan, and see what kind of faith it was. There are many people who like to try to define faith today, and so we're going to look at this kind of faith, this kind of biblical faith, this kind of faith granted by God. And most importantly, I want us to see the God that we believe in. The God that's revealed here in the pages. So first of all, let's look at the setting of Jonathan's faith. I'm just going to give you two major points. And I know we're not supposed to do this as preachers, but I've got some sub-points today. But uh, I've got two major points. I want us to see, the, the first of all, the setting of Jonathan's faith. And then secondly, we're going to look at the exercise of Jonathan's faith. But let me give you all these little sub-points here. The setting of Jonathan's faith, first, first of all. And really, these are kind of things that are working against Jonathan. Most of us would look at these things, man, there's no way God's going to do anything in that. There's no way that God can work through these circumstances. How in the world can a man like Jonathan have faith when he's surrounded by all of this stuff that seems to be working or hindering the work of God? But let me just kind of set these up for you here and then we'll kind of see what happens. First of all, we have these terrible Philistines there, the setting of Jonathan's faith, these terrible Philistines. You just go back to chapter 13. We preached that last week or the last couple times we met together and talked about this, but back there in chapter 13, verse 5, 30,000 chariots of the Philistines. Think about it. Chariots. <laughs> 6,000 horsemen, the Scripture says, and troops like the sands of the seashore in multitude, the Bible says. I mean, this was a despairing moment for Israel. It would have been for most of us, I think. 
Most of Israel was hiding in that moment. They they didn't take Jonathan's small victory back there in chapter 13 as somehow a favor from God, if if you will. I mean, others were sort of fair-weather Israelites. They just sort of turned and and sort of joined the the Philistines we see here in this text. Uh, Just sort of accommodating the Philistines, if you will. Uh, Listen, don't we know people like that? Sort of fair-weather believers? And can we be honest that sometimes we're a little like that as well when things get hard? Yeah. They're all in until things get hard at home or at the church. So the Philistine army seemed bigger at that moment than God's power, and so they just sort of, let's just join the enemy. There we read in chapter 13, there were three Philistine detachments that left Michmash, one to the north, one to the west, and one to the southwest or southeast. It seemed no one could stop them. Israel is in a desperate situation. In fact, we might from a human perspective say they're in a hopeless situation. And and there are no real weapons available for the Israelites. We learned back there in chapter 13 that even if they wanted to to have their their farming instruments serviced, they had to go to Philistia to have it done. The Philistines had all all the metal, they had all the metal workers, they had all the tools, and Israel had none of the weapons. It's finished for Israel. Israel's done. Uh, what can Jonathan and his armor bearer do in light of that kind of enemy? We, we see another kind of uh, part of the, the environment, if you will, of, of Jonathan's faith, and that is his secret plan. Boy, I don't think any of us would ever come up with a plan like this, but here it is. Uh, chapter, four, verse, chapter 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, there's just two of them against these multitudes of the Philistines. Right? That's, that's his plan. Now, I would not suggest a plan like this. I would not recommend a plan like this, but here's the plan. Uh, evidently, Jonathan knew some things that we don't. <laughs> Jonathan took his armor bearer into confidence. And we might argue that, that Jonathan's armor bearer perhaps had as much faith, if not more, than Jonathan. But, but it's usually only those who have the name that get the attention, right? Jonathan has the name, and so he's given the attention. He says, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. And then the writer tells us a secret. Tells us a secret. But he didn't tell his father. He didn't tell his father, the king. We're not told why he didn't tell his father. Maybe Jonathan, again, knows something that everyone else doesn't know. Maybe he thinks his father will forbid it, which would probably have been the case. I mean, Saul, Saul at this time wasn't being very bold in those days. Where's he at? He's either sitting in the pomegranate cave or sitting under a pomegranate tree, right? He's not doing anything at that time. Not very bold in those days. Just sitting there. And we're told that Israel doesn't know about the plan either, just a little bit later there in the text. I mean... This was the making of some real drama. <laughs> Most of us would advise Jonathan against such a plan. So this is, this is one of those things I think maybe this is, this is working against you here, Jonathan. That's not much of a plan there, right? At least from a human perspective. Thirdly, we see the, the rejected king and the priest. This, again, this is sort of the setting of Jonathan's faith. We have the rejected king and the priest. Look at verses 2 and 3. The Bible says there, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave or tree at, at Migron. The people who were with him were about 6,000 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan 
had gone. We have the rejected king and priest. Jonathan is moving forward in faith. Listen to that. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree near Gibeah. Notice the leaders of Israel there in verses 2 and 3. Saul the king, and where's he at? Simply sitting under the tree. Whatever he's doing, we don't know why he's waiting there. And Ahijah the priest. Notice the author is, is careful to give us a little bit of the background of Ahijah. A little bit of his family tree. And you guys, if you've been keeping up with the story, you've been studying with me through First Samuel, you remember that family tree, do you not? Yeah. The writer reminds us, if you don't know, he's the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod. Do you remember Ichabod? No glory? Yeah. I hope you remember when no glory was born to Phineas' wife. You remember that? Yeah. You remember Phineas and his brother, those meat-loving, women-chasing priests? The sons of Eli, whose line of succession God Himself had rejected. And whose line would eventually end. This was the priest in Shiloh, the writer points out. He was saying something by bringing this to the reader's attention. Now here it is. Here are Israel's leaders. Here is is Saul, whose dynasty has been rejected back there in chapter 13, assisted by Ahijah, whose whose, uh, priestly line has been rejected earlier in in the book. And since Samuel uh, left back there in chapter 13, Israel has no authorized prophets to guide them, to direct them. They, they have a rejected priestly line instead. This is what they have. I mean, what help can such a king and such a priest give to Jonathan? They are absolutely no assets to his plan. Yeah. So not only do we have this secret plan, not only do we have this rejected king and priest, we also have an impossible place. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. It says there in uh, verse 4, "...within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the uh, Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna." The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. And we'll pause there. There's the impossible place. There, there it is. Now, now, this I think is going to help our understanding of, of the setting of Jonathan's faith in God's Word. Within the passes that Jonathan was taking to the garrisons of the Philistines, we have two rocky cliffs, if you will. Uh, uh, one on the north side of the pass from in front of Michmash, where the Philistines were, and, and, and one to, uh, on the south in front of Geba. And the names uh, roughly in Hebrew mean slippery and thorny. I mean, roughly that's what the, what the names mean. Uh, th- in other words, this is not exactly a, uh, a hiker's uh, uh, paradise. You, most of us would have avoided these kinds of places, in other words, right? It's not exactly a place you say, okay, this is where we're going to confront the Philistines on old slippery and old, uh, and, and old uh, uh, thorny, right? You just would not do that. All that to say, again, that this is not a place that most of us would want to walk or much less set up a plan to attack the Philistines. Now this pass would have cut deep between these two cliffs toward the Jordan River. Now you get the idea that most people would have thought, this, is, this, place, this place is impassable. This is not a place where you're going to be able to conduct your plan, Jonathan, right? This was something, something else, again, working against Jonathan. But we know often, don't we? There's something we know as the reader, something that we know as believers, that what often seems like liabilities for God's people, 
are assets in the hands of our God. Right? He often works in these kind of impossible situations and impassable places. And, 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 and when we're surrounded by enemies and when we're surrounded by incompetent or unbelieving people, God often does miraculous and wondrous things. Praise be to God. These are going to be assets in God's hands. And so we have the terrible Philistines, the secret plan, the rejected king and priest, and the impossible place. There it is. I mean, you couldn't have, I think, a more appropriate setting for an act of faith. Faith is often exercised in these kinds of humanly impossible moments. Jonathan in himself was powerless, I think, to do anything against such an army and such a situation. But God is going to do something uh, through the means of this faithful servant, Jonathan. I mean, don't we see these kinds of moments all throughout the Scripture? Through God's servants? Don't we? Yeah, I mean, think about this. How about, how about the Apostle Paul again? We'll, we'll talk about him a little bit. He's not here so we can talk about him. That's the Baptist way. But think about it. He's in that Philippian jail. He's in chains. How is God going to save anybody? You know, I mean, the best they can do is just start singing... Start praising God. But then there's an earthquake. The chains fall off. And God so works a gracious work that He radically changes a man's heart, the jailer's heart, that that this man is so radically changed that He takes these guys that are in prison there and and He ministers to their wounds. He, He provides for them. You know, God can, only God can do something like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah? I mean, how about, how about this one? The apostles, they were so alarmed at some of, the, some of the stuff that Jesus was saying. You know, Jesus said some pretty radical things. And, and so they came to one point where they said, who then can be saved? Right? Who then can be saved? And of course, I love the words of, of Christ. He says, with man, what? It's impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, and for everyone who has faith to believe, Jesus Himself faced a humanly impossible situation on a sinner's cross and yet rose from the dead to save us from our sin. Amen? I think about our little flock here at Providence Baptist Church. I think about you a lot. Especially think about you when I'm when I'm somewhere else, another country, another place. Usually at night, I'm sitting there thinking about, man, I wish I could just have all of you there and share with you. And and I think about our sweet times of fellowship and our times around the word, word, you know. And I think I think, man, what what can our little flock here do to change the world? I mean, think about it. This world that seems to always be working against us. And, and, and here's the answer. Are you ready for this? This may be alarming to you. Uh, here, what can we do to change the world? Are you ready? Absolutely nothing. That's right. On our own. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely nothing. What can we do? Right? We can't fix what's broken in the world in, in, on our own. The answer is nothing. Listen, but by faith, we can trust the God who has saved us. Yeah. And I praise God we are. We can, we can trust the God who has saved us to do His bidding in places like Hamlet, North Carolina. Isn't that amazing? In, in places like the Czech Republic, and in Madrid, and in Rome, and in southern Africa. 
I mean, everything again is working against us. I mean, think about our size. We're just a small little flock here. Jesus said concerning those who were following Him, He called them little flock, didn't He? That was His title for them. Little flock. This is us. We're just this little flock. You know, we're not, we're not a, we don't have all kinds of people. We don't have armies of people to go in and, and do things that, that maybe some bigger churches have or whatever the case may be. You know, we, and and we're, we're, we're living Ashboro. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that, but it sounds like something that just got burnt. And all that's left is, and all that's left is the ash. I tell people that when I go, go places. Where are you from, Ashburn? Ash? Ashburn? Yeah. And, and listen, we don't even speak English. Right. We speak Southern. Right. I'm learning that in, in Africa. Sometimes I have to repeat myself multiple times because they tell me that all the time. Uh, Pastor Bob, you, you, you don't speak English. You, 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 speak some, you speak American or something. Yeah. And listen, and God has called us, listen, to places that you and I, most of us have never even seen before except for a picture of two. picture of two. And through people, and God is doing these things through people that, that you've never met before except for a few correspondents. And, and, and listen, in spite of all that, what an amazing God we have. Yes. What an amazing God we have. That He saves, and He plants churches, and He starts a school, yeah. and, he, and, he, and He just, I mean, a seminary in Rome, uh, you know, a, 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 another training school in the Czech Republic, yeah. And and uh, works in Madrid and Bill Hill going around the world and 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 um, training pastors. I mean, what an amazing thing God has done through this little flock. Pretty amazing, I think. Our God, what a privilege we have to believe and faithfully serve a God like He is. There's a second thing I want us to note. Uh, the second big thing that I want us to notice about not not only the setting of Jonathan's faith, but I want you to see the exercise of Jonathan's faith. And this is really found in verses six and following, primarily in verse six. But I, I want us to look at this, this this section. Let me let me read this uh, this little this little short little section here, and then we'll talk about some of the other areas. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "Come." Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I was thinking about this, this exercise of Jonathan's faith, and and by way of kind of breaking this down, again, to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on there, think about about, um, Jonathan's social environment. There, There is no reason for us to have optimism about Jonathan's faith. You go back to chapter 13, we learn some things about his daddy. I mean, there's no reason, right? I mean, we can definitely say that Jonathan's faith was not a product of his environment. I mean, a quick look back at his, uh, again, at his father, and we we can see that he didn't learn it there. We, the readers, have no grounds for optimism there. There's nothing in Jonathan's family that says, we can be optimistic. (laughs) I mean, now Samuel's parted ways with them, right? I mean, some people are, are kind of naturally optimistic, and, and it's usually because they just don't know any better. They just don't know any better. But faith, listen, but faith can arise even when there is absolutely no reason for optimism. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Jonathan. <laughs> so, another thing that I want to notice here in our text is the spiritual ground of Jonathan's faith. I want you to see where his faith is coming from. 
the spiritual ground of Jonathan's faith. Just again, verse 6 really quickly here. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of the Philistines, or of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Can you see it? Can you see where his, where his faith is rooted, where it's grounded, where it's coming from? Jonathan clearly indicates the spiritual ground for his faith. His faith arose in the terrible circumstances because he was looking not at his circumstance, but looking to the object of his faith, Jehovah, yeah. Yahweh. <laughs> there it is. His was not a, a faith in his faith, right? My, my faith is just grounded in my faith. I, I, I believe in my belief. No, that wasn't Jonathan at all. He was believing in God. He was trusting God. It was a faith rooted in substance and evidence, as the writer of Hebrews says. It was rooted in divine knowledge. Jonathan knew some things about the God he believed in. He called Him Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenant name, the personal name. In other words, Jonathan had a relationship with Him. Otherwise, he would have called Him Elohim or somebody over the, you know, the God over there, the Creator God. But no, he called Him Jehovah. He called Him Yahweh. The personal covenant name. <laughs> Note again His words. He had a clear conviction about this God He knew. He says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing. Did you hear that? All-inclusive. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. I mean, what a marvelous and glorious truth about our God. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord... What? shall be saved. Our God, I hope you guys remember this, our God is a saving God. Jonathan recognized that. I mean, even, his, even the human name of Jesus means what? Salvation. Or the Lord is salvation. It's equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. The Lord is salvation. Yeah. I mean, this, this is... a. This is a marvelous truth, a wonderful truth. I think a life-changing truth and a truth that every believer needs to have rooted and grounded in their own thinking and in their own heart. Our God is a saving God. Amen. I've got to tell you today, there is a judgment that is coming upon the world of unbelievers. Coming soon. Sooner now than yesterday. I, just, I figured that out on my own. Yeah. And listen, it will be an impossible situation for sinners. It will be far worse than the Philistines. Listen, it would be far worse than what any Philistine or any, any, any horrible or godless army will do. And it will be performed by God Himself. God Himself will be the judge. Yes. And it will end, the Bible says, in a lake which burns with fire. Mm. Mm. But I've got to tell you today too, you can be saved from His wrath by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, our sinless substitute, Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're willing to believe that Jesus died in your place and that He conquered death, you can be saved. (laughs) Our God is a saving God. But I want you to know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are today. If God has awakened you this morning, if God has awakened you from the dead, you can believe. You can believe that He is a saving God. Nothing hinders His work. No one can stop His will. He has saved and He will save. And if you're willing to believe, He can save you too. He can save you too.
Well, how does Jonathan know this truth? We have to ask the question, how does Jonathan know this truth? Well, we don't know anything about this fellow at this point, except for his one military conquest in the, pre- in the previous chapter. Uh, but, but we get the impression that he's heard the stories of God's victories in what appeared to be impossible situations. <laughs> he had a sort of Romans 10 kind of faith, if you will. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of Christ, the Bible says. He had surely heard about Egypt, right? How, how, how God had delivered His people through a slow-tongued Moses across a, a Red Sea with the Egyptian chariots on their heels. He certainly had heard about that. He had certainly heard about Joshua leading the people of God across the Jordan, marching around those walls of, 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 of uh, um, Jericho. There it is. Marching around those walls of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down and God gave, God, God gave His people a great victory. He delivered them, right? Certainly he had heard about those things. Maybe he had heard about Gideon, the scared Gideon, and those countless Midianites, and how God rescued His people with with some clay pots and some torches. (laughs) God had revealed Himself to Jonathan in a marvelous way. We don't know that he ever heard an audible voice like Samuel. And and, and by the way, you shouldn't expect one either. You shouldn't expect one either. The Bible says God spoke in times past, what, through the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us how? Through His Son. Where? In the Scriptures. In the Scriptures. Through His apostles. Even though Jonathan's uh, strong faith had probably not come through an audible voice, it did come through revelation from God. You, you may remember Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, right? right? Uh, it was test time for the apostles and Jesus comes, who do people, who do men say that I am? They responded, you know, maybe one of the prophets or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of, the, one of these guys, but then he turned it to them, made it personal. Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up again, the spokesman for the group. You are, you are the Christ, yes. the Son of the living God. There it is. And, and I love Christ's response. He says, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Yes. In, in, other words, in other words, Peter, you, you, you didn't glean this through, through, through education. Uh, you, you, you didn't get this through, the, through, a, through a school somewhere. You, you didn't muster it up inside of you. Where did it come from? It came from God Himself. Yes. It came from God Himself. His faith was divinely revealed from God the Father, Jesus said. Similarly, Jonathan's understanding of God and his faith was rooted in God Himself. He didn't come up with it. He didn't conjure it up out of the depths of his own depravity. God gave it to him. You guys know this. No one comes to God unless the Father draws him. And we remember Ephesians 2. It's a highlight of our ministry here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What's a gift? What's a gift? Salvation? Faith? Repentance? Every aspect of it is a gift. God graciously gives it. This foreign idea that even unbelievers can believe is hogwash. That's, you can quote me on that. It's recorded, I think. It's hogwash. I mean, listen to that statement for just a moment. There is no such thing as a believing unbeliever. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Unbelievers can't muster a faith to produce health and wealth, much less their own salvation. No, no. Faith is a gift to us. God's gift to us. 
And the faith of Jonathan produced in him a great expectation from God, it says. It says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. <laughs> it may be that the Lord will work for us. And it recognized God's normal manner of working. He says, by many or by few. In other words, through the means of His servants. This is the way God normally works, through the means of His servants. Jonathan isn't trusting in his secret plan. Did you notice that? Jonathan, Jonathan isn't trusting in his own cleverness. He isn't saying, God will work for us because I have faith, because I'm clever. No, it is a trust rooted in God Himself. Amen. And something about the nature and the character of God Himself. This is where Jonathan's faith is. I want you to see also the submissive attitude of Jonathan's faith there in verse 6. I mean, you would, you would think that by definition of faith in many churches today, that God is some heavenly waiter in the sky. Simply waiting us to, to ask because before, before God will do anything, He's just waiting on us to ask. Is that, is that consistent with the God of the Bible? No, not at all. Jonathan's faith, Jonathan, Jonathan's faith isn't like that. There, there's a real beauty, I think, in, in Jonathan's faith. It, it's, it's imaginative faith, by the way. <laughs> I mean, no one, no, we would have never come up with stuff like this. <laughs> I, and I wouldn't recommend to come up with stuff like this. I mean, the whole scenario, I think, is rather bizarre. Um, I mean, who would think to do things like that unless he had been led by God to do so? It may be... The, our translation, the ESV says, some, some translations say, perhaps the Lord will work for us. I mean, can you hear Jonathan's submissive attitude toward God? I mean, and it is such a contrast from the false prophets and the blab it and grab it crew. Yeah. Right? It's so, so different from them. Uh, Jonathan, listen, John, Jonathan is saying to his armor bearer, God can do mighty works with very little resources. And maybe God will be glad to do it in this case. But how can we know unless we put ourselves at His disposal? I mean, how refreshing is that to hear? I mean, that, that's, that's a refreshing uh, aspect of true faith. And you don't hear it very often in our world today. Mm. He knows what the Lord may do. Who knows what the Lord may do? And we can say it this way, there's no limit to how Jehovah can save. I mean, he has, no, he has no need of 600 trembling Israelites, much less 600,000 trembling Israelites. It's the same faith of Daniel, isn't it? It's the same faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they face lions in a fiery furnace. The Lord may save us, but even if He doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your image. Amen. In other words, they didn't know. Perhaps the Lord will save us. It may be that the Lord will save it. But if He doesn't, we're still going to move forward in faith. We're still going to be obedient to the Lord. Yeah. Who knows? Mm. It may be the Lord will work for us. Many, many would say today, they would, hear, they would read this, and many would say today, Jonathan, don't say that. If you say that, maybe, you're undercutting your faith, they would say. You need a more positive affirmation, Jonathan. You've got to be a little bit more positive than that, Jonathan. They would say if faith is going to be faith, then it always has to be certain, it always has to be dogmatic, it always has to be absolutely positive. And the Greeks had a word for that. Are you ready? It's called baloney. <laughs> say it with me. Baloney. I taught, the guys in, I taught the guys in Zimbabwe and they thought that was hilarious because I guess they eat a lot of baloney there too. So. 
anyway. And I said, they were like, I said, can you explain that to us? And I said, yeah, baloney. It, it pretends to be meat, but it really doesn't know what it is. <laughs> That's it. And this, isn't this the definition of faith in the world? It's like the world doesn't even know what faith is anymore. It's baloney. Listen, my friends, let's not confuse faith with prideful arrogance. Do you understand? Let's not confuse faith with prideful arrogance. Jonathan's it may be is part of his submission in faith. Faith always submits to God and to His will and to His purposes and to His plans. Faith doesn't demand. Faith doesn't doesn't command. Faith submits. He confesses the power of God and then the freedom of God to act according to His own will. Faith never dictates to God like, like He's some employee that we can command at our will, right? In faith, we have to recognize a degree of our own ignorance. Can we be honest about that? You and I, listen, you and I haven't read the divine decrees of God. We don't know exactly what God's up to apart from the Scriptures, right? We don't, that's all we know. Apart from that, we just have to say, Lord, it, it, it may be. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Because we don't know. Again, we haven't read a transcript of the divine decrees in most situations. I think this should excite our faith. I think this should fuel our faith. For who knows what this powerful and good and sovereign and merciful God may do. Isn't that exciting? Who knows that He might be delighted to do against these uncircumcised Philistines. Who knows? Who knows what He might be delighted to do through you? Or through me. Your job and my job is to trust and move forward in obedience. I was talking to Brother Harry, and we've been talking about this for a long time about the work in Hamlet. You know, we've said this from the very beginning. You know, we, we, it's talking about a small flock, a little, a little flock. It, it has been. It's been slow work. And we said this from the very beginning. We don't know what God's going to do. We're just going to move forward in faith and obedience to, to go into all the world and make disciples. We'll just start preaching and teaching and see what God does. If God decides to shut it down, He shuts it down, and we just continue to work here. If God decides to fill that place with, with worshipers and save men's souls, and we see multiple people people baptized and we should see a great revival down there, then praise be to God. But if not, if not, praise be to God. God has a plan. Mm. Well, what does God do in our story? What does God do in our story? Jonathan proposed a sign to know whether the Lord would have them proceed or not. He says, if the garrison called them up, that would be the green light and signal of victory. That's verses 9 and 10. The Philistines spotted the two navigating old, uh, up old slippery in Hebrew. And some wisecracks were made about the Israelites coming out of their holes. You guys remember that back in chapter 13. They, said, they say, come to us and we will show you a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's like we used to say, we'll teach you a lesson. Or we'll show you a thing or two. Right? In other words, it's a challenge. I mean, that, and by the way, that's all Jonathan needed to hear. <laughs> Most of us would have started going down old slippery back the other way. <laughs> but that's all Jonathan needed to hear. He was moving forward in faith. He'd already, he'd already determined if they tell us to come, oh, well, that's, that's, that's our sign that God, has, uh, that, that God has given them into our hands. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. The garrison of the Philistines didn't see any real threat from Jonathan and his armor bearer. I mean, you get the idea that they thought, hey, in just a few minutes we're going to be back to our card table and our beer. You know, Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed the steep and slippery north face of the, north, north face of the pass. 
And before the, before the Philistines can call on Dagon, I mean, they're, they're on them. They're on, they're on these guys, right? Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I love the scene too there. Jonathan's in the front, the armor bearer's behind, and, and Jonathan incapacitates them in some way, and the armor bearer finishes them off. I mean, this is a gruesome scene there, isn't it? And, and, and there were now 20 Philistine men who would never ask to teach another Hebrew a lesson. <laughs> yeah. This sudden and unexpected attack produced two results among the Philistines. First, terror among the Philistines. And second, uh, confusion. They literally did not know what hit them. They didn't know what happened. One translation of verse 15 captures, I think, the idea better. It says, it says, Terror broke out among all the troops, both in the camp and in the field. The outposts and the raiders were also terrified. The very earth quaked, and a terror from God ensued. Yes. Yeah. And then in verses 16 to 20, we see the confusion breaks out among the Philistines. They start attacking each other. I mean, they had the swords, <laughs> so, so uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? God used uh, even their own swords against them, their confusion. But it also, it also produced an effect in Israel. Mm-hmm. Notice the effect it produces in Israel. Verse 21. Um, verse 21 says, Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had, who had gone up with them into the camp... Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were the Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. There it is. The fair-weather Israelites turned to be with Jonathan and his armor bearer. (laughs) And the scared ones joined in too in verse 22. It's amazing what one act of courage can do to other men's faith. Yes. Can we pause for just a moment and be honest with God, with one another, to ourselves, that we are more often characterized like the ones hiding in the holes and the fair-weather Israelites than we are like Jonathan. Oh my, it's got quiet in, it got quiet in here. It's true though, isn't it? Yes. It's true. Mm. More like cave hiders and fair-weather Israelites. I think there's a lesson for here, here for us. That, that faith, faith can oftentimes be contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to help your brother or sister who's afraid, who's scared of the world? If you're a man or you're a woman of faith, listen, point them, point them to the stories of faith like this. Yes. And, and live among these people in, in, in courageous faith. I don't mean foolishly, but live among them in, in, in courage and faith. Point them to the Scriptures, right? That, that's, that's where faith is encouraged. That's where hope and faith are built and strengthened. I have a family member in my life, and I can't tell you how many times in ministry and life where I've, I've wanted to quit. It's been discouraging over the years. You know, we've been doing this for a long, long time. You, you guys, Jonathan's not here, but we, some of you understand that. You know, you, 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 don't, you don't lose hope in God, but you kind of you lose hope in people, yeah. faith in people, and sometimes the ministry is just hard. You know, we've joked about this before, uh, and we, we say things like this. By the way, this is a joke. Yeah. I'm saying this right up front. That we say things like, if it wasn't for people, we would really enjoy ministry. <laughs> I'm, for you guys, I'm just talking about Harry. That's all. That's all. Yeah, but it's true, isn't it? You know, I've quoted, I've quoted Adrian Rogers so many times before, but he, he says, to dwell above with saints we love, well, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. 
It's true, isn't it? Sometimes in ministry we get discouraged. And I've got this person in my life. Um, I won't tell you her name. But um, every once in a while, she'll come up to me when I'm discouraged, or I'm, 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 I'm losing heart, and I want to give up, I want to quit. She'll say, do you not listen to yourself preach? <laughs> yeah. Or she'll say, you know what the Scripture says. You, you, you know the God. I'm like, I know, I know. But sometimes that's all I need is that little kick in the backside just to encourage me and, and to keep me moving forward and to keep me trusting the Lord. We need people like that in our lives. Jonathan, I think, was this kind of person in the lives of Israel, right? They, they certainly got a little swift kick from, from Jonathan. Here's a man who's facing these impossible, impossible odds. Let's join in. Let's be faithful. Let's remember the God who saved us, called us out of Egypt, provided for us, fed us, protected us, has fought our battles over and over and over again. Hmm. Back to our story. Look, look, notice, kind of lastly here, notice, notice who gets the glory. You see, the story's really not about Jonathan at all, is it? Verse 23, So the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, saved Israel that day. You see it? How plain is that? <laughs> so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond, beyond Beth-Avon. There it is. It wasn't Jonathan's courage. It wasn't Jonathan's plans or even his faith that saved Israel. It was the Lord. Now certainly God used Jonathan's courage. He used Jonathan's cleverness. He used Jonathan's faith. He used his fighting skills and the like. But make no mistake about it, God saved Israel. The Bible plainly says that. But but even Jonathan's earlier statement acknowledges that if victory comes, it will be the Lord's work. It may be what that the Lord will work for us. All Jonathan's assets and all ours were come to nothing without the Lord. Now, by way of application or further application, we're not national Israel. We're not facing off with terrifying Philistines. But these are written for our examples, the Bible says. And I hope in some way that you and I can see ourselves in the text of Scripture. And we are, by the way, can we, can we acknowledge this today? We are in a spiritual battle with Satan and all of his demons. And that in itself can be a terrifying thing. Mm. We do face challenges at home, at work, at school, in ministry. Hmm. You want to have a faith? Listen, you, you want to have faith in these moments? L- listen, here's an encouragement. Here's an application. Read the stories of God's salvation. Yes. His deliverance of His people. Let, let, those, let those truths penetrate your, your hard heart. L- let, let those truths soften you to the truth. A- and commit that truth to memory in those moments. Those moments when you're tempted to doubt. Those moments when you're tempted to fear. Commit those truths, the the, the countless truths, the countless stories of God's hope and God's deliverance and God's salvation. Let that fuel your faith and your obedience. Let those truths change your heart. For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. We face, and we will face, many, many challenges that require faith. Trusting in God who works according to the counsel of His will. Listen carefully. And I want to I be careful to say this too. We're not fatalists. As Calvinists, we're not fatalists. 
You know what a fatalist is? Fatalist says, it doesn't matter what we do, God's going to do what He's going to do. That's not faith either, by the way. Right? The God, listen, the God who ordains all that is also ordains the means by which He accomplishes it. Jonathan himself was an instrument in God's hands to deliver it. You are an instrument in God's hands for Him to work and perform His will in the world. Amen. What we do absolutely matters. Yes. Absolutely matters. Mm. Mm. You are the means of Christ's mission in the world. We are His body. You know all the body language of the New Testament. We are the church. We are, in one sense, the physical, the visible presence of Christ in the world. And He's given us differing roles and different but vital gifts in serving Him. My prayer, my hope, is that the Lord would grant us a courageous faith. A courageous faith to witness of His grace, to go to hard places around the world, to make disciples. My prayer is that He would grant us a courageous faith to stand firm without compromise in our homes, in our workplaces, in a world that hates us, all for His glory. Adoniram Judson was, uh, was the first missionary to, first American missionary to, um, in those days it was called Burma. We call it Myanmar today. Um, I think he was 25 years old. He had just, I mean, two weeks prior to him leaving, he just got married to his wife, Anne. Two weeks. And they're off on the mission field. Can you imagine? Imagine, brother. Um, two weeks. I mean, that's a mission field, I think. Those first two weeks of marriage are a mission field, trying to, trying to sort through all that. I know it was for my wife, but uh, trying, to, trying to figure all that out. But they, they, they took off, and I, I'm, it was a long journey. They, they finally made it to India. By the way, in those days, there were no planes. Finally made it to India, and then made their way to, uh, to Burma in those days. He labored there for 40 years. For many, many years, he, he, um, he didn't have a convert. In fact, you, you read a story and he was tortured. He was put in prison. We, we, could, we could say and compare him to, to Jonathan in many ways. Everything was set against this guy. He didn't know the language. He didn't know the culture. He, I mean, this was, this was a new place for him and his wife. He's a, he's a, he's a newlywed. <laughs> I mean, everything is against this, this guy. Forty years. As the story goes, as he went on in ministry and was faithful there, he, he believed. He believed God had sent him there. God had called him to do that, and he believed God. He believed God's word when he says, "Go into all the world, make disciples." And so he stayed, and he labored, and eventually churches were planted. Many churches were planted, and I, I guess maybe if we could highlight maybe his, his his greatest accomplishment by the grace of God was was that he was able to have the Bible translated in their language. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He was a guy, everything was stacked against him. By most standards, Adoniram Judson was a nobody. I mean, especially in Burma. (laughs) He labored for years, again, without a convert, didn't know the language, didn't know the culture. But God convinced, convinced him, led him to reach Burma with the gospel. He believed, like Jonathan, that God was a saving God. And that God could save by many or by few. (laughs) Uh, let me ask you this in closing. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It really makes all the difference. Yes. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, give us faith like Jonathan. 
that we too might be usable in your work. God, we've, we've not always been people of faith. We've oftentimes been more like the ones hiding in caves and like the ones waiting for things to get better before we act. God, we know that You can do all things. Increase our faith. Aid us in our study of Your Word that You would grow our faith by it. Show us over and over again Your power and Your mighty works that we would be convinced more and more about who You are and what You are capable of. Lord, nothing is impossible for You. Lord, we don't want to be foolish, but we do want to be brave. We ask in Your name and for Your glory. Amen.